the elders have asked Josh Mosher to come be with us as an intern for the remainder of this calendar year. Most of you know Josh well, so this isn't going to really change a lot of what Josh is doing. He's already helping lead my shepherd group. In fact, he led it all by himself this past summer while I was in sabbatical, and he's discipling and uh, counseling and so forth, but um, Josh grew up in a ministry home, so he gets it. He understands it. He's been around his whole life, and as he and Tina have been here through the years, they have given themselves to serve and to shepherd. And so Josh not only has a very sharp mind who sharpens himself through reading and study, he also has a shepherd's heart, and those two things are uncommon to be in harmony. And so we're grateful and thankful that he's agreed to come uh, serve with us as an intern for the coming year and learn some more behind the scenes about what it looks like to be an elder. And so um, we're grateful, Josh, that you're going to be with us. So that's not an official position for him, just to be clear, but it allows him to gain some more experience in doing more official elder kind of things and allows us to challenge him and to learn from him as well. So um, he's already doing a lot of these things. It's not going to feel really any different to any of you, but we wanted to announce that, and uh, we're looking forward to that. So Genesis 43. We've had a lot today to digest, a lot of things we needed to cover, more than normal, and uh, I'm grateful for all the good things we've had a chance to consider together today. But now we come to God's Word. It has been the tradition of Protestant churches now for 499 years, which is a really nerdy way of saying that I know when the Reformation happened, so next year will be 500 years. Maybe we'll do something big next year for that. But for, for 499 years, the, the heart of Protestant worship has been to gather together around God's Word. When we send you the liturgies each Saturday, that's not just so we can kind of beg you to come on Sunday. The point of that is to give you a chance to see kind of the, the structure of what it is that we do. And even the songs we pick, the prayers that we pray, everything flows from, from what the Word tells us. We are a Word-centered church. So each week, basically, our, our liturgy, our plan for worship is driven by the text that we're going to be in. So with all the things that we've done today, we now come to the center of what our worship is to be. And the reason for that is not just so you can be smarter. That's a danger. Uh, if, you, if you run around in, in circles like we do where you're giving attention to what we call expositional teaching, teaching through the Bible verse by verse, that's all well and good. We're very committed to that. Sometimes the fallout of that is that you can end up being very intellectual. You can be a cognitive Christian but you may not actually get the point of it. And so when I say that we're a word-centered church, that the sermon, the time in the scriptures is the most important thing that we do on Sunday mornings when we gather, I'm not saying that we're merely trying to fill your head. We're trying to help you to see your God. And frankly, that's why Moses wrote these things down. So there was design even in the construction of the Bible and in the construction and the gathering together, the tapestry of the stories of the Bible. Moses wrote these things about 3,500 years ago. That's a long time. And that means that God's people have been benefiting from these stories, true stories, written down for three and a half millennia. One of the questions that comes to mind is, why would Moses write these things down? And why did he pick the things that he picked and, of course, skip a lot of things that he skipped? 
Well, as you know the story, Moses led the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Their captivity had formed certain structures in the way that they looked at the world. They thought of themselves as slaves, oppressed. They often felt abandoned not only by men, but by God. And this man comes in from the wilderness, though, of course, at one time he had been in the royal court of Egypt, and through the power of God begins performing signs and wonders, turning water into blood, sending frogs and flies on the land, turning the sun black, and eventually the firstborn of every Egyptian and their livestock is slain in judgment. And through this, God releases the people from Pharaoh whose heart he had hardened and leads them out to the Red Sea, at which time Pharaoh decides that he has just lost the best thing that he had, which was his free slave labor force, pursuing them with his army. Of course, you know the story. God led them over dry land through parting the waters of the Red Sea and then brought those same waters crashing down upon his enemies thereby crushing them and preserving his people. He brings the people of Israel to the mount called Sinai, gives them his law, his covenant, that eventually leads them to the land of promise, to Canaan. Of course, if you know your story pretty well, they initially reject God's provision and promise to give them the land out of fear because they began looking at themselves again and not at the God who had just delivered them through plagues and signs and wonders and parted the waters of a sea and given them a law on a mountain which flashed with thunder. I mean, he did all those things and they didn't believe that he could deliver Canaan to them. So they were forced under a curse to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And around that time, as best we know, Moses wrote these things down. Why did he do that? Well, these people who had seen the power of God to deliver them, were the same people who forgot it days later. As Moses spent time on the mountain getting the law from God, they were frustrated at the delay of his coming down from the mountain, and so they incited his brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf. They bowed to it and worshipped it. God told Moses what was going on, and as he came down, God told him that he would make a new people through Moses. Moses begs God not to do this, but to show mercy, and he does. When they show disbelief and do not go to conquer the land of Canaan under God's power, God curses them and gives them 40 years of wandering. If you've ever wondered the reason for that somewhat random number, it's because it represented a generation. That generation would not be able to enter into the land of promise. So Moses writes these things down for doubtful hearts. He wrote these things down for those who lust after their idols. He wrote these things down for people who have a hard time trusting God. He wrote these things down for people who struggle with their own sin. He wrote these things down for people who struggle with their families. He wrote these things down for people who struggle with suffering. He wrote these things down for people who doubt the future. That's why Moses recorded these stories 
And if you're paying attention today, those categories are true of all of us, too. We worry about the future. We struggle with our families. We struggle with our idols. We struggle with our pride. We struggle with unbelief. And that is why these stories are just as relevant for us today as they were three and a half millennia ago. And so as we come now to Genesis 43, because we're going chapter by chapter through this story, we find that this chapter reveals to us the fallout of sin and the faithfulness of God. Most of you were around back when Chernobyl happened, which is kind of a funny way of even talking about it because Chernobyl is really a place, not an event, but it became more of an event. Of course, the nuclear reactor, um, whatever is a technical word for this, I'm not a scientist, um, had fallout, and uh, the surrounding town, which was called Pripyat, which is where all the workers lived, about 50,000 people, had to flee. And to this day... Pripyat is empty. If you've ever seen pictures of it, it's kind of eerie and weird. There's this Ferris wheel that's sitting there in disrepair and old cars and these old Cold War era uh, apartment buildings, which are totally empty. Um, To this day, no one's allowed to live there. It's estimated that up until this day, with the fallout that remains, that around 4,000 people died because of that. That's a lot. In fact, to this day in Great Britain, there are still restrictions on the way that sheep farmers have to feed and tend their sheep because of the way that the wind patterns carried the fallout from Chernobyl across Europe. It was horrible, and it resounds to this day. Well, that's what sin's like. Sin creates fallout. It's created fallout cosmically. It's created fallout familially, and it's created fallout for us individually. Let's talk about some of those things, but first, let's read the word together. Genesis 43, this is the word of the Lord. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send your brother with us, our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down, for the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, or Jacob, said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we we will rise and go. That we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. The tension here in the family is thick. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present. They took double the money with them and Benjamin. 
they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. We have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. When the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. He lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with them. May God bless to us the reading of his word. I want to put in front of you a simple outline today, and first of all, we're going to talk about the fallout of sin. What are the effects? What are the consequences of sin? Well, first of all, this is subtle. The earth itself has been cursed. You'll notice at the beginning of the text that the famine continues to be severe. As we've talked about in this text up to this point, God brought the famine on purpose. When Joseph was raised to power to be second in command in Egypt, He fulfilled or prophesied about what would happen through Pharaoh's dream, that God would bring seven years of great plenty to Egypt and the surrounding region. And during that time, they should store up excess grain because seven years of horrible famine were coming, so horrible that it would make the seven years of plenty be forgotten altogether. But all of this ultimately is a basic consequence of sin. We know this from Genesis chapter 3. When God comes and curses Adam and Eve and the serpent, He also curses the ground. He says to them, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. 
and you shall eat the plants of the field. Then Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 8 where he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. One of the consequences of sin, part of the fallout of sin, the, the global and even cosmic consequence of sin, that the earth itself has been cursed. And though God was using this famine sovereignly, it's a result of sin itself. The second thing we see, we'll spend more time on this, is that families have been wrecked. Not only do we see the, the ground outside, the, the creation itself groaning, we, we feel this second one more acutely. We don't hear rocks crying out. We don't hear trees sighing and, and sorrow. But you do see these things in your families. It's interesting as you read the first ten verses, the tension that existed between Jacob, also called Israel, and his sons. They had lived now for decades together, and, and these are grown men at this point, older than a lot of us sitting here today. But there was still tension. Tension because Jacob had not always been the best father. He had played the favorite. That had created horrible tension with his other sons. Jacob had made poor decisions. He had four basic wives, two wives, and they each had a concubine. So there were lots of crazy dynamics going on. It's hard enough living with one spouse, right, if we're being honest. I had a young person ask me just the other night, what's it like being married? This guy's like 22, and he's dating around. And, and he said, is it hard? And I said, it, yeah, it's difficult. It, it's great, but it's difficult. But what if you had four wives or four husbands, and you had 12 kids plus a daughter, and all their kids, and you were expected to all get along? Well, it didn't work so well. If you add to that the fact that a lot of these sons were relatively wicked, committing adultery, murder. Oh, and by the way, they also sold one of their brothers into slavery and had lied about it to their father, affecting him deeply for the rest of his life. This family was full of struggle. This family was full of tension. Because of sin, families have been wrecked. We find this also in the garden. God says to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, I will surely multiply your, chain and ch your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. Probably the more literal rendering of that would be to be over your husband, and he shall rule over you. So what's it going to be like for moms, wives? They're going to struggle with their kids from the very beginning. They're going to struggle with their husbands, and vice versa. We're going to struggle with each other. Eve, who was from the rib and Adam's side, who was his dear one, would now be one who would bring hostility to him and him to her. In the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, the elder son kills the younger. From the very beginning, right after sin entered the world, there was fallout. There was family wreckage. I know most of your stories well enough to know that a lot of you have faced this. Some of you have come from homes where dad did not stick around, or perhaps mom. 
And even if mom or dad did, they were not the ideal parents, didn't love you like they should have, in fact, sometimes far worse. They did things to abuse you and hurt you. It should be that parents live to protect and nurture their children in godly, safe environments. But why is it that this fails to happen so often? I think it fails to happen very often at the point of fatherhood, which frankly shouldn't surprise us if we have minds that are somewhat theologically informed. After all, what's Satan doing in the garden when he comes and tempts Eve? He's tempting her to not trust in the goodness of her father, that he was a killjoy, that he wasn't good, that he wasn't truthful. And what's been happening ever since? Fathers struggle, sometimes far worse than that. Sometimes they don't even try. If Satan can destroy our conception of earthly fatherhood, that goes a long way to destroying our conception of the Heavenly Father. If you had a father that was harsh with you, even if he stuck around with his words or perhaps with his hands, if he demeaned your mother, demeaned you, if he failed to affirm you and show you affection and love, if he did not demonstrate to you what the kind heart of the heavenly Father is like, it is hard to get over that. And if you doubt my words, gather four or five guys together and ask them about their dads. It's tough. Families have been wrecked because of sin. Some of you are dealing with the fallout of that still. We'll talk about hope in a little bit, but most of us can identify with the wreckage of sin that our families have experienced. The third thing I think this text puts in front of us is that consciences have been damaged. As you read through this text, and going even back to our text from last week in chapter 42, these brothers lived in fear constantly. Psalm 53 verse 5 says, There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Then in Proverbs 28.1, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The fallout of sin affects the whole globe. The fallout of sin affects our families. The fallout of sin affects our consciences. As you put these two chapters together, and even going forward to the end of the book through chapter 50, these brothers live in fear. And seemingly the primary catalyst that led them to fear, that led them to doubtful living, was that they knew what they had done to their brother Joseph. They're continuing to lie about it. We know in chapter 42 that they tell Joseph, who they do not recognize, that their brother was dead, which in their minds could have been true at that point, but it wasn't true when they gave him up. Of course, they had told their father Jacob that he had died. And for all these years now, like two and a half decades, that he had believed it. And now here they are together as older men, gathered together for a meal, and they are very uncomfortable. And that's what happens to your conscience when sin goes unconfessed and builds upon itself. I've told this story before, but when I was a young guy, 
13 through 16 or so, I did a lot of really bad things, a lot of things which to this day I horribly regret. But I remember very distinctly back in the day, we had house phones still, you know, back in the day when you had like VCRs and things like that. We had a house phone hanging on the wall. And I remember that whenever we would get a phone call, which was pretty often, my dad was a pastor and there weren't cell phones back then, so he got calls all the time. Whenever the phone rang, and I'm kidding, I I kid you not, like every time the phone rang, that I was afraid that somebody was calling to tell on me. Maybe somebody at school or somebody from church who really knew my misdeeds. And I lived in fear for years. Every time the phone rang, which was basically an everyday innocuous occurrence, that that something was going to catch up with me. Eventually, not to belabor the story too long, it did. I lived in fear all the time. And I want to say to you tenderly, but in a challenging way today, some of you might be there today. There might be some secret, hidden sins that you have not confessed, you have not brought to the light. My encouragement to you is to stop living that way. David talked about this in Psalm 51 when he rehearsed his story after sinning with Bathsheba, that he couldn't even sleep at night because his sin racked him so much. bothered his conscience. These guys had lived now for decades with that guilt. We know that because they're super afraid. They don't know why the money was put back in their sack after their last shopping trip to Egypt. So they come to Joseph's steward wondering what's going on. They don't know if they're going to be seized and forced into slavery. Maybe they're going to be seized and killed. Joseph certainly had the authority to do such a thing. But they had made such horrible decisions in the past, unmerciful, selfish, hateful decisions, and then lied about it and lived with that lie that they thought here perhaps that lie and that treachery was finally catching up with them. Though we'll talk about grace in a moment, I want to say to you that there is always room for mercy. Your Father delights in forgiveness. If you are dealing today with the guilt of the past, you can stop that. You can stop it by bringing the sin to the light, by confessing it and receiving assurance of forgiveness. Ultimately, if you really think about it, if you are unwilling to receive the forgiveness of God that will bring peace to your conscience, it is ultimately a sign of pride and unbelief. Pride that somehow you can pay God off, that somehow you can do enough penance to make God be appeased. Brothers and sisters, that is not biblical. The best thing you can do is not hide, but to bring the sin to the light, as I've said, asking and receiving the forgiveness of God. Additionally, you may have to do that with some people. Your sin may have affected people in very deep ways, and it may be that you have to go to them as well, seeking forgiveness and restoration, that you might be reconciled both to God and to them. But I will say to you that this kind of living is not worth it. And if you're being honest today, you know that. All of us have been there at one point or another, even if we are not experiencing that today. That a guilty conscience that is racked by sin is a horrible, horrible way to live. And it is not worth it. So I say to you, because I love you, if we can help you, please stop living that way and let us help. But this text is primarily not about the darkness of sin. This text is primarily about the faithfulness of God. 
First of all, he is merciful to sinners in very simple ways. Because of Judah and his brother's sins, which were many, more than just selling their brother into slavery, what did they deserve? They deserved to be punished, vaporized. But God didn't do that. He was merciful to them. How do we know that? Because they're still breathing at this point. And though the famine has been brought against them, it was brought with a design. It was brought with a design that they might find food. Because the brother that they had sold into slavery had made provision for them, though he had not known it, and though they certainly did not. God preserved them alive. One of the interesting things about this family line from Abraham on down is that they were often not faithful. And you might think that this chosen family through which God would not only build a nation but bless the world, that He would start over, that He would pick somebody new, hopefully finding someone at some point who would be, by and large, faithful. Jacob certainly had his long periods of time where he was not faithful to God, and even when he became basically more faithful to God, he often made terrible decisions and was often a bad example. The fallout came down to the next generation because we see it in his kids. But God was merciful, not only in giving them enough food to eat, but also in preserving their family line. God loves to demonstrate mercy. That is why Ezekiel says to us in Ezekiel 18.32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God does not delight in slaying even the wicked. He must, because he hates sin, but he takes no glee in it. God delights in showing mercy. Mercy is essentially not getting what we deserve. And brothers and sisters, how often has God shown us mercy, even in this past week, in countless innumerable ways, ways that most of us miss It could well be that one of the most worshipful things that you can do in the coming days is to pay attention to that and ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see. Holy Spirit, give me eyes to see how you are merciful to me through Christ. Merciful by giving me this food. Merciful by giving me this job. Merciful by preserving my marriage. Merciful by keeping me safe. Merciful by putting me in a place where I can thrive. God is merciful again and again and again. I think often this is the point where we fall apart. If we fail to appreciate the mercy of God, inevitably that will lead to cynicism, lack of thankfulness. It will lead to relational tension. But the opposite is true as well. If you delight in the mercy of God, you will be hopeful. If you delight in the mercy of God, you will be grateful. If you delight in the mercy of God, you will be patient with people. You will stick with them, even when they hurt you deeply. Why? Because that is how God is. The mercy of God is fuel for our faith. The mercy of God is healing for our souls. The mercy of God 
helps keep our relationships glued together. So I encourage you to delight in the mercy of God. And this text subtly hints that God is merciful even to the most wicked. So he is merciful to sinners. How else does God demonstrate his faithfulness? Well, secondly, he transforms hearts. Wicked as these brothers were, we do see some changing going on. You specifically see it with Judah. In verse 8, he tells his father, send Benjamin with me, because if we don't take him, there's no reason to go. Joseph won't see us, even though, of course, he didn't know who Joseph was. And he says to him, if I don't bring him back to you, if I don't set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Reuben had hinted at that back in the previous chapter, but he had done it in kind of a wrong way because he says to his father, you can have my two kids if I don't fulfill the vow to bring Benjamin back to you safely. Well, I mean, what grandfather is going to go after that offer? He loves his grandkids perhaps more than he loves his kids. Judah comes at this more maturely. He says, if I don't bring Benjamin back to you, blame me. In a subtle way, and I don't want to force this too much because I don't think necessarily Moses was really hinting at this, but in a subtle way, Judah is the focus of these next few chapters. As much as these chapters are about Joseph and the arc of his story, how he goes from slavery to to royalty to preserving God's people through sovereign providential means. Subtly, this story is also really keying in on Judah. This is important because Judah was an adulterer, and not just any kind of adulterer. He had had sexual relations with his daughter-in-law. But Judah begins to change at this point. Whereas before, Judah was led by his lusts, whereas before... Judah was consumed with his, his own devices, his own ways. At this point now, he begins to change a little bit. In a, in a very subtle way, he begins to emulate the later son that will come through him, which we will talk about in just a few moments. Judah will become the leader of a tribe. Judah will become the leader of the tribe through which a person named David would come. And his son Solomon the pinnacle of the kingdom of Israel would be under their leadership. And the pinnacle of the leadership of those two men was when they lived sacrificially for the good of their people. Judah begins to stop living so selfishly, so self-focused, and begins to live for the good of others. Because by making these promises, he's watching out for his whole family. And in a subtle way, he's offering himself up as a bit of a substitute if these things are not fulfilled. We'll talk more about Judah in the weeks to come. But we see God changing hearts. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says to us, Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul likewise says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And in Colossians 3, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices 
and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There is one certain thing, and that is that if you belong to God, you will be being changed. God will do this. If you are not changing, this calls into question your identity. Jesus says to us in John chapter 15 that if we are branches abiding in the vine, we will bear fruit, and He will be measuring the fruit. The fruit is not what saves us, but the fruit is the result of having been saved. We are saved by grace through faith, but we are the workmanship of God, and we are to perform the good works which He has prepared for us. But God is the only one who can change these hearts. God is the only one who can enable the good works. This is at the very sort of central core of the promises of the new covenant. When God says to the people of Israel through the prophet that He's going to make a new covenant with them, He says, I'm going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to write my law on that heart of flesh and I'm going to put my spirit within you. God is not seeking people to just be sort of nominal converts. God is seeking transforming worshipers. So, your selfishness, though thick, should be being diminished over time. Your pride, deep though its roots go, should be being diminished over time. Your lust for idols of all sorts over time, will be diminished. And this leads to delight because God designed us to live that way. So not only is He glorified as we look more like Him because we are being renewed into His image day by day, Colossians chapter 3, as we learn to live in harmony with Him once again, we delight because that's how He made us. So pursue change and beg Him to enable it. Thirdly, and lastly, the faithfulness of God shows up primarily because He always keeps His promises. Judah is a symbol of this. Judah, who was so horribly sinful prior to this, now begins to be changed. To flash forward a bit in chapter 49, his father Jacob, before he dies, blesses Judah and says that through Judah... The nation will be blessed, and hence that the whole world will be blessed through him. You would think it would be Joseph, because Joseph was the most faithful. Joseph was the one who walked with God most securely. But Judah underwent the most transformation. And through Judah, a man named David would come, as we've already said, and Solomon. And eventually there would come one who would be the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. Son of God, fully God and fully man. And He would come and He would rescue His people through His death, being their substitute for sin, and through His resurrection, conquering sin and death and giving us the promise that He will make all things new. You see, God keeps His promises to Adam and Eve, cosmic though the consequences of their sin were. He kept His promises to Noah, that he would repopulate the earth and bring blessing to it. He kept his promises to Abraham, that through him he would build a nation and bless the entire world. 
and to Isaac and to Jacob and to sinful Judah and to abandoned, forgotten Joseph, God always, always keeps his promises. Joseph experienced it when these brothers came back and bowed down, literally on their faces, fulfilling the dream that God had given Joseph, that one day his whole family would bow down to him. Little did he know the pain and suffering that would come in the interval. Little did he know the big picture. Even still at this point, he did not fully realize all that God Almighty was doing. But through his suffering, through his abandonment, through losing his family altogether, he brings them back together. And through God's plan, providentially, elevates Joseph to a point where he can not only save all the people around him, but more specifically, these people, his family, through whom the Messiah would come, crushing the serpent, keeping promises to Adam and Eve and their offspring, and blessing the world. So ultimately, though the name of Jesus is not mentioned here, though the Messiah is not named here, that, brothers and sisters, is what's going on in this text. God is preserving this family alive so that we could be here today and worship God. We would not be sitting here today proclaiming that we are the people of Christ, trusting in His grace both for now and for forever, if Joseph had not gone down to Egypt and preserved these people alive. God is always working providentially and sovereignly to keep His promises, which means that whether it's low-level suffering or the big stuff, whether on your bright days or on your darkest, God is at work, and you can trust Him. He will always, always keep His promises. James the brother of our Lord Jesus, says to us in the first chapter of his epistle, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God never changes, and you can trust him. And lastly, as we close today, this is the fulfillment of the promise that we see hinted at being unfolded in Genesis 43. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When Moses wrote these things down for Israel, he was saying to them that they had a father who loved them, who was going to care for them, and give them His eternal mercy and grace. And through them, He would bless the entire world. Because one day he would send his own son and he would bring us back to himself in reconciliation. We might experience his redemptive love. So, take heart. Though the fallout of sin is deep and tragic for all of us everywhere, the faithfulness of God always wins. He is merciful to sinners. He transforms our hearts and he always keeps his promises. We can trust him. Let's pray. Father, now, take your truth. Help us to understand it. Help us to embrace it. Where we are sinful, may we confess and may we repent. And then may we believe and may we trust. 
May we walk with you in faithfulness this week. Enable that by your spirit, we pray. May we love our wives, our husbands, our children, our neighbors. May we have eyes to understand, to see. May we have hearts to to feel the pain of this world. May we interpret it for our kids. May we interpret it for our neighbors that they would understand. And after interpreting why things are the way that they are, help us to point them to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of your promises, who is the answer for all of our needs. So we are grateful, Father, that you are so faithful. May we walk in faithfulness this week, reflecting your great grace, proclaiming your good news. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, your eternal promise to us, your people. Amen. Would you go ahead and stand?